Hey Trailblazers, it's Jesse, and it's time for another episode of Trailblazing in Agriculture, a podcast for anyone interested in hearing the stories of the agriculture industry's pioneers and innovators. Today we continue our series highlighting trailblazing women in agriculture, and in this episode you get to hear from a woman who has blazed a trail for women in the U.S. beef industry. On this episode of the Trailblazing Podcast, we're talking with Barbara Jackson, a former American National Cattle Women's President and business owner. Barbara grew up in the beef industry and never left. She is part owner of Red Rock Feeding Company, a 30,000 head feed yard located in Southern Arizona, as well as co-founder and co-owner of Animal Health Express, a Tucson-based online business that sells animal health supplies, tack, livestock equipment, and pet supplies. Her career also includes time at Syntex, where her roles included sales representative, national accounts coordinator, and director of public relations and advertising. There is no question that Barbara has done great things in the beef industry, and I'm excited for you to hear from this trailblazer. Thank you, Barbara, for joining us today, and we're so excited for the opportunity to visit with you about your experience with the agriculture industry and and the things that you've seen over the years. You grew up in the beef industry, and you've remained connected with agriculture throughout your career. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself as we get started? I uh, am a native of Arizona. My uh... Parents came here in the early 50s to uh, build and manage a feed yard for another company. And then in the middle 60s, ventured out on their own and started our own family feed yard, which is still in operation today, managed by my brother and sister. It's a 30,000 head custom feed yard. So one of the earliest feed yards, um, a lot of people don't realize cattle feeding really Commercial feed yards we know today really started in the Imperial Valley in Southern Arizona in the 50s and 60s. And so I grew up in the feed yard business. And uh, so went to college and after college, uh, being the youngest of four kids, the family business was a little crowded. So I ventured out on my own and got into the pharmaceutical business, but uh, still own part of the feed yard and close to home. And so that's how I grew up. Yeah, definitely sounds like lots of experiences that you've had, Barbara, and I'm excited to dive into some of those. I think I want to start first with talking about what life was like growing up in the feed yard for you. It was a blast. Um, you know, I learned to drive when I was about 10 and and uh, helping in the feed yard, anything from branding, processing, receiving cattle to putting out hay for new cattle uh, loading the hay drag for the feed feed mill to grind hay and and uh, you know it's really a 24 7 thing unlike cow calf or stocker deals not that they're not a 24 7 business also but it's a kind of the same thing day in day out and a lot of people don't like it because of that but it's a pretty routine deal but i got to do a little bit of everything and of course growing up that's a blast yeah, absolutely. I can relate to that just growing up on the farm and ranch. Just some of those lessons that you learn and just being immersed in some of that. What is maybe one life lesson that you learned on the feed yard, Barbara? Well, I think anybody with animals, it's responsibility. They depend on you. And if you're not there taking care of them, they're not going to make it. So I think we've all experienced that, whether you're feed yard, cow, calf, whatever, if you don't take care of those animals it's going to be a wreck. And so, so it was always, you never quit till the cattle were all fed, the cattle were all taken care of. And uh, 
Can you talk a little bit, Barbara, about how the feed yard has evolved over the years, you know, since it first started and maybe the role that technology has played in some of the advancements that have taken place? My father and uh, Carl Stevenson and the University of Arizona were were on the cutting edge of uh, developing feed rations for feed yard cattle, you know, being a young industry at the time. And uh, we're pretty much some one of the first feed yards to utilize steam flaked rolled grain to cook the grain and then roll it, which is still the standard of the industry today. So that was watching that. I mean, University of Arizona used to have cattle feeder days where 600 people would show up from around the country and the world. So the, the way we feed cattle ha- has evolved and, um, and uh, we can measure their performance so much better now and, and, and watch what we do and, and the impact on it. It's, it's technology, but it's just old fashioned animal husbandry at the same time, you know, how they're performing, what their health is and everything else. Um, that, you know, and um, um, computers are everywhere. Our, the mill um, pretty much runs the same as it always has, but the record keeping and all of that is, uh, and then the packers with their, their grids and their, their formulas and, you know, how they can optimize the, the, the meat and the carcasses better than we ever did before has been amazing to watch too, the whole migration of the packer industry. Much of the United States is experiencing uh, drought conditions this year. Can you talk a little bit about what conditions are like uh, in Arizona where you're at and, and maybe even where the feed yard's located, Barbara? Well, our, the feed yard's north of Tucson, about 30 miles. And then my husband and I actually have a little cow-calf ranch southeast of Tucson, about 45 miles. And uh, we are feeling the drought big time. There's the state, I would say Arizona has liquidated or, or lowered the cow numbers 30 to 50%. It's just the whole West is burned up. I mean, it's not just Arizona, the whole West is burned up, but... Uh, it's certainly taken its impact. And uh, <laughs> I spent last night up to two, every two hours feeding a premature calf that was born to a replacement heifer that shouldn't have been bred and was too small and too young and that deal. So there's a typical thing of what the drought's done, you know, something got bred that shouldn't have. And so you have a creamy calf. But, um, you know, I'm, we uh, deal with it like everybody else, try to lower your numbers, try to find pasture somewhere else. And, uh, but it's going to be, as always with the cow business, unlike other animal businesses, it takes so much longer to build it back. So we're going to fill this for a few years. Even if we get a normal summer rain, our monsoon season is when we get our rains, July, August, September. And you hear it's going to be good, but we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, it's interesting. I was back home this weekend having a conversation uh, with my dad and, and another rancher in our area and just talking about some of those hard decisions that producers have to make. And, you know, they're difficult decisions because you don't want to have to sell off those cows because it takes years and years to build up those herds. And just like you said, a lot of producers in a lot of areas of this country are having to make those difficult decisions. And it's never fun and never something you want to have to experience. Yeah. No. And even for Arizona, I mean, you guys are used to somewhat dry conditions, but you know it's bad when when uh, when it's dry in the desert. So 
Yeah, you know, where we're at, normally we get about 18, 19 inches of rain. A lot of southern Arizona gets six to eight inches of rain, but, you know, we haven't had two inches in the last two years, so, so it's dry. And now yeah. you worry as summer comes on and the heat starts to crank up. Hopefully we won't have as hot a summer as we did last year, but uh, fire dangers, you already got the fires going everywhere. You know? So now with little grass you have left, you don't want it to, if you have any left, you don't want it to burn up. Can we transition a little bit, Barbara, to talk about your education? You attended Washington State University and got a degree in animal science. How did you kind of choose that college and, and what made you decide that that's what you wanted to pursue a degree in? Well, growing up in the cattle business, that was always my passion. I wanted to stay in the cattle business some way, shape or form. So, you know, an animal science degree was always the, the goal. Did not want to be a vet, veterinarian or any of that stuff. This guy's got a tough job there and uh, growing up in the feed yard doctored a lot of cattle and he worked hard out to save them and the suckers still die I just didn't want to be a vet so I actually started here at the U of A in Tucson and went a little while and just decided I needed to get away from home and, and experience a different part of the country and I was fortunate to be able to do that and so uh, Washington State University appealed to me because it did have a good animal science program along with it veterinary degree program that I did not want to pursue, but it had that there. And um, really, it's a small town, you know, universities, sometimes you get to be in these big cities and, and being a country kid. So Palma is a small town in the western United States where I wanted to stay and they had a good program. So I went up there, and did my junior, senior year up there and graduated from up there. Great, great experience. I love the Northwest beautiful place and and good people so it was a it was a good choice what did you do after college then once you graduated barbara so i spent a year at home trying to see if i could fit into the family business but that didn't work so after a year at the feed yard i watched as these pharmaceutical sales reps would come to the feed yards and I thought, you know, they're not working near as hard as I am, not near as dirty as I am, and they're making more money than I am. Maybe we ought to look this over. So I interviewed and was fortunate to get hired by a company called Syntex, who was the company that invented Cinebex implants and had a line of vaccines. And their, their major line was for feed yards, which is what I knew best. So it was a great fit. And uh, I spent 10 years with Syntex in sales and marketing, management, et cetera. Just a wonderful opportunity, wonderful education. Did that experience with Syntex then lead you, Barbara, to launching Animal Health Express? That did. I, uh, so I made a lot of contacts, obviously, in that, in that business. And uh, growing up in an entrepreneurial family, you know, owning my own business was kind of a goal and a, uh, aspiration or you know, something I wanted to do. And it wasn't that I was going to start up a pharmaceutical company, but I could get into distribution. So, so that's what I did. And I left Syntex in uh, about 87, moved back to Tucson and uh, was doing some things and trying to put together some things when uh, I also at that time met my soon to be husband and uh, we got married and wanted to launch a mail order animal health business. And with our experiences and our connections and everything, we were able to do that. So we started in 1990 Animal Health Express as a mail order company to serve the West. There were several other mail order companies, but they were all based in the Midwest. And 
in the animal health business, the way we run beef cattle in the West versus the Midwest is, is different. And uh, we felt we could serve that Western market better. And so, so that's what we did. And here we are in 2021, still running Animal Health Express. That's awesome. Can you talk a little bit about how the business has evolved over the years, Barbara? Of course, we started Miller way before websites and the internet and all of that. And printed the old catalog and mailed it out, which we still do. And then uh, um, eventually got into the websites and that type of thing. But, uh, you know, ranching has innovated, obviously, in different parts of the country. And um, um, so we've just tried to provide the products and innovation service to keep up with that. And and uh, I think we've done well with that. Um, we've seemed to carved out a little niche as companies have gotten bigger and merged both on manufacturing and distribution sides. We've stayed out here on our own as a small independent, which is a little unusual today. And it, it's, I'll be honest, it's tougher and tougher all the time, but uh, I love it. I love it. Wouldn't trade it. You talked a little bit about how, you know, it's a little unique what you do, um, the business being online and don't have a traditional storefront. How did COVID-19 impact your business last year, Barbara? The Animal Health Express side, the COVID really didn't, I mean, you know, ranching and ag goes on as usual. So it really didn't affect it. I did in the last, or my husband and I did in the early 2000s, open a little local feed store. And that was affected by COVID. Not bad though, but because I have the mail order, they could, they could call and we could ship it to them. So, so we were fortunate in that aspect for the local feed store. I mean, you can't ship hay and sacks of feed and that kind of stuff. But our main business is still the Pharmaceutical Animal Health Express. So that that went on and we weathered COVID pretty good. So, so that was good. Yeah. As things go on or as the years go on, and I feel like changes come, like you talked about going from the mail order catalogs to having an online and a website, were some of those changes maybe difficult to adapt to or you just kind of took it as they came, Barbara? The whole social media technology has been a learning curve for all of us. And as I get older, I'm not as innovative as I like to be. But, you know, you do it. And I am, customer service is number one. You'll hear my staff, you know, it's what I pound. We have nothing to sell different than anybody else other than customer service. So if I can serve my clients better via internet connections, social media, websites, that's what we're going to do. Because the bottom line is, how can we help the the livestock owner do his or her job better, more efficiently? You know, I've been in this pharmaceutical business over 40 years. And, and what still get my kicks is when I see new technology come on the market. And then I think our job is to go out and help them apply it. So it works in their, their operation. I mean, you look at ranchers, cow-calf people, we do the same thing all over the country. We raise those babies and sell those feeder calves or, or feed them. But we do it so differently in different parts of the country. And even, even within our own state, we do it differently in northern Arizona than we do in southern Arizona. And that's all over. And so helping ranchers apply that technology is, is fun because when you can help them do better at their business, that's what's neat. 
Do you go to like trade shows and things like that, Barbara, as a way to connect with producers? Yeah, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Nevada, some of the Southwest is where I concentrate my efforts. But we ship to 20, 40 states every month. Just, you know, you never know where somebody finds you. So it's good. It's good. And and uh, again, you learn something every time what they're doing differently. And working for Syntex and getting to travel a lot of the country. And then my experiences with the National Cattle Women, knowing women all over the country. It's been fun to learn how we all do it, but do it differently. Over the years, you've been extensively involved in industry leadership positions, including serving as a member of the National Beef Speakers Bureau, committee member on the National Beef Cook-Off and Animal Well-Being Committees, president of the Arizona State Cowbells, and involvement with American National Cattle Women's, including serving as president in 2013. Why have you prioritized being involved in these various organizations that strive to support and promote the beef industry? Well, again, it's kind of what you grew up in. My my mother was very involved and my father was very involved. He was a cattle feeder president. He's actually first chairman of the Arizona Beef Council when it started. And my mom was a national, at the time, cowbell president. And, and so I just grew up with seeing the, the need for being involved in your industry. And if you don't take care of your industry, you're not going to have an industry. So it would just kind of beat into me, not necessarily, but, you know, I grew up going with my mom when I was a kid to the cowbell things, and it's it's socially fun as well as professionally rewarding. So these these cattle women were truly, you know, when I started in the animal health business and everything, I was one of the very first women in it, and I didn't have any role models in my professional life, and and but my cowbells were kind of my mentors and role models. I'd see these women you know, come off the ranch and they could ride and rope and doctor and my mother would go out and plumb water troughs and then go run the office and everything. And these women were just amazing. They did it all, you know, and raise the kids and do all that stuff. So these cattle women were truly my mentors and it just uh, was a kind of a labor of love. And so as I got more involved with cattle women and then, as I say, as you said, served as national president, that put me on the executive committee for the National Cattlemen's Association. And uh, somewhere along the line, I got appointed to the Cattlemen's Beef Board and served six years on that. So there was about 10 years there from about, oh, 1998, 99 to about 2009 that I was super involved in a lot, a lot of national committees and going to DC and doing all that. It's an insight that most people don't get into our industry and, and uh, the trade association and how important it is. And I wish more people not necessarily experience it or just be made aware of how it all works because uh, we need it. You know, we're, as the old saying goes, we're less than 2% of the population. We don't have many votes when it gets to D.C. So we've got to pick our battles and go get them and go win them. How do you think we get people to be more involved, Barbara, to do just as you've seen, we're 2% of the population. So how do you think we get those young producers or I guess any age producers to be involved and to be a voice for the industry? Well, I wish we could be more cohesive as an industry, the beef industry. And you got to admire the individuals that do it are all independent, hardworking people, men and women. And it's, it's kind of like herding cats. It's hard to get them together on certain issues and when you have limited funds to go out and educate them is really a chore and and uh, we don't do it well enough in my mind 
because if you go out and I've done this myself and in my business, I've done a lot of BQA educational meetings, et cetera, beef quality assurance, you know, and I go to a local cell barn and have a meeting and, and I always do this. I say, how many of you know about the beef checkoff? Oh boy, about 90% raise your hand. How many of you know how it works? And like two of them raise their hand. They have no idea. They have no idea. And then you get some disgruntled members of the industry and we go off and we start our cap and we go off and start U.S. Cattlemen's and we go off and we start independent cattlemen's. Yeah, you know, we need one association, one group and one message. And that, that would be my dream if I could somehow put that all together. But no matter which trade industry or association that you're hopefully a member of, you just need to pay attention. You know, we we have what? Seven used to be 750. It's probably down to 700,000 cow-calf producers in the United States. And the average cow herds less than 40 head. Well, those guys got a day job and they got cows on the side. And so they, I don't even know if they really consider themselves in the cattle business. They certainly don't belong to an association. So when you add up all the members of all those cattle associations, it's a pretty small percentage of all the livestock owners, beef cattle owners in the country. So I wish, we, you know, whether it be NCBA or Farm Bureau or whomever could devote more time to educating the grassroots cow-calf guy. Because unfortunately, and I experienced this in college, when I went to college up in Washington State University, went up there, didn't know a soul. You know, and you start meeting kids in class and you say, well, you come from a ranch? No, I come from a feed yard. And they get that funny look on their face, you know. But too many ranchers think the feed yard and the packers are enemy and the feed yard and the packers are market. It gets the beef on the table. And, and so that lack of cohesiveness hurts us. And I, I, in my national roles and committees and everything, I've sat in a room with the Secretary of Agriculture in nine different associations sitting there. And I guarantee you there wasn't one cohesive message going to that Secretary of Ag. And he just looked at us like, we all need to get it together. And we do. We do. Yeah. And in today's day and age, when we're facing not necessarily scrutiny at times, but questions from consumers, that cohesion is probably more important maybe today than it has been yes. before. Yes, definitely. Going back to your service as um, Cattlewoman's President, Barbara, can you talk about some of the issues that were top of mind for you and your association and the cattle industry at that time? Well, you know, I think about that vintage is about the time pink slime hit the deal and and we were past we were past Mad Cow, the cow that stole Christmas and all of that. So, you know, you had a couple of things that flare up about that time, but I think the the beef industry did an excellent job with mad cow disease. We've had a few cases since then and nobody even notices them anymore. We did not handle the pink slime thing very well at all, but it finally passed and we got beyond that. I think that that's part of our industry not being cohesive and being reactionary instead of proactive. And we've learned from it and, and I'm sure Colin Woodall and his team at NCBA are, are more proactive. One of the things that I'm proud that we did get done is, is the cattle women got more involved with the cattlemen's legislative things. And, and we don't, cattle women is a separate organization and we don't rubber stamp everything NCBA does, but we're in fairly good alignment. But, you know, where we feel strong about it, we, we go forward and voice our opinions and we go to the Hill and make our views known but um, I think probably those couple of issues were probably the hardest thing. What, what saddens me 
gets me upset is I'm not kidding you. Since I was a little girl and my mother was a cowbell, you have heard issues from the consumers about antibiotics, animal welfare, and we're still hearing them. The fact that we have not successfully neutralized, diffused, and responded to that consumer demand just blows my mind, just blows my mind that we haven't been able to do that. And we haven't. We haven't, because that's the first thing you hear as well. I don't want antibiotics or this kind of stuff. And it's stupid because there are no antibiotics in red meat. If there was any residues, they didn't get through the kill plant, you know, but we've not been able to do that. And again, funds and focus. I did serve one stint on the long range planning committee, the NCBA, the National Cattlemen's and the NCBB, the Cattlemen's Beef Board. Grabs individuals from across the United States, uh, men and women, and, and tries to get the focus for the for the what our effort should be with checkoff dollars, etc. And uh, in my opinion, we try to do too much, and I wish we could focus on a couple of more issues like that. And uh, and uh, what do you think it is, Barbara? That that has those questions about antibiotics and some of those. Why do you think that those are still questions that we're getting from consumers and that there's still so much misconception about it? What do you think it's going to take to get those put to bed and for people to understand that information? Well, communications and a marketing campaign, which costs money. I mean, we don't do television anymore, but social media, you know, people are just ignorant. They don't know our rigorous standards. I've been fortunate to travel abroad a few times and I'll never forget the first time I went to Europe and you went to a meat market and here's meat saran wrap. You know, you don't know if it's rabbit, beef, pork, horse, what it is, you know, and our products are so well labeled and everything. And, and now you got people selling organic and, you know, they say no hormones. Well, hell, everything's got hormones, lettuce, peas, everything's got hormones you know, it needs to say no added hormones, but even that is almost counterproductive to our industry. The antibiotic thing, I mean, nothing in the meat case has antibiotics in it. It's been screened, you know, and, and I think what flared this up was all the, the antibiotic thing blew up here about we're using too many antibiotics, et cetera, you know, and how many tons of antibiotic the livestock industry. Well, you know, when you're dosing a thousand pound steer, it's different than when you're dosing a hundred pound human. And if somebody really sat down and compared, you know, every time a little kid's got a snotty nose, that pediatrician pumps him something mainly to keep mama happy. And I think the abuse of antibiotics in people is way worse than it is in animals, but because we use so much more of it, we get blamed for it. And I think it's again, just marketing and telling our own story. I mean, you know, the majority of the cattle never even get doctors. They never get sick. You know, we don't even give them anything. And those that are, are monitored, you go to a 100,000 head feed yard and any animal that gets an antibiotic, a shot, any treatment is individually logged and recorded and they individual tagging. They know exactly what that animal got. And, you know, I don't think most kids are that well recorded. So we do a good job. We just don't communicate it. And the industry and the consumers don't know what a good job we do. Yeah, it comes back to telling that story and and that cohesion that you talked about earlier, for sure. As a woman who has done so much to to blaze a trail for women who are passionate about the beef industry, Barbara, what advice would you give to young women involved in the industry today? Figure out what you want to do, follow your passion, and do it. And do, we do a better job now than when I was younger, but 
network, mentor, whether it's men or women, I don't care, but work with others in that industry and watch and listen and just follow your passion. The opportunity's there. And, you know, I ran into some glass ceilings and some doors and you either go around them, under them or over them, you know, you just, I got past everything. So it can be done and, and, but it takes persistence and you got to have a little bit of a thick skin because, you know, you're going to get your feelings hurt somewhere along the line. Just uh, be smarter and work harder. You've obviously done a lot, Barbara. We talked about, you know, growing up on the feed yard, your experience in college and with syntax, launching your own business and, and even your leadership experience with the industry. If you could give, you know, your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? I wish I had started my own business sooner. So if you have a passion to do something on your own, go for it. We all have a finite amount of time in our lifetime and we don't know what that is. My mother died at 51 and my father's alive at 103. So you never know what's ahead of you. And uh, find your passion and go get it, whether it's working in a, for somebody else in a bigger company. Working for big companies offers some advantages, you know, more capital, more, more, a bigger, bigger path they cut. So you don't have to be an entrepreneur, but just find your passion and, and go do it. Don't, don't let anybody tell you no. The last question that I ask all of our um, guests on the podcast, Barbara, is who a trailblazer has been in your life or a mentor, someone that has made an impact in your life? It would have been my mother. She did a lot of things in her short life. It would have been my mother. No, I would just like to give my mother credit. Her name was Pat Stevenson, and she uh, blazed some trails, too. There's lots of examples, and just find one and go do it. Feeling inspired? Barbara's story is one that should encourage us all to find our passions and go after them. If you have a passion for something and are willing to work for it, nothing can stop you. Thanks again for joining me for today's episode of Trailblazing in Agriculture featuring Barbara Jackson. Join me again next time as our journey to highlight trailblazing women in agriculture continues.